0: Well, Numbers chapter 14, here we've got the, the story of Israel's response to um, the news that the land was so strong uh, and they, they couldn't get into the, the kingdom, as they thought, uh, they thought it was just too much for them, and therefore they're told that they're going to uh, die in the wilderness. And, of course, we're very much aware from 1 Corinthians and from Hebrews that this whole situation speaks of us. That these people, Paul says, were types of us. We who have been baptized, we who were, as it were, in Egypt and came out and went through the Red Sea and are now in the wilderness on our way towards God's kingdom. And, of course, the sober fact is that so many of them who left Egypt and went through the Red Sea didn't get to the Promised Land. And yet, as we're going to see, there is some reason for hope in all that, despite that. But anyway, so they say in verse 4, they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. And in fact, Nehemiah 9.17, which you might like to scribble in the margin there, says that they did that, they did make a captain. It doesn't say who it was, but it says, uh, Nehemiah says, that they did actually do that. I think it's significant that people so want a leader, People are so rudderless. We all tend to think we're strong individuals and sort out our own destiny. But actually, we all desperately want a leader. And looking at the structure of religions, including many Christian denominations, you see that, that people so desperately want leadership. And that is really an excuse for not having a personal living relationship with God. Well, Joshua and Caleb, they fall down in front of the people, rend their clothes... Uh, Verses 6 and 7, sorry, verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces, and Joshua and Caleb rent their clothes, and they beg them to basically believe in God's grace, to believe that God loves us so much that you will and can enter his kingdom. So verse 8, if the Lord delight in us, and the idea is he does delight in us, so surely he's going to give us the kingdom. And I think Paul had that in mind when he talks in Romans about if God has given us so much, including the death of his son, how much more then shall he give us all things? In other words, it was harder for God to give us the blood of his son than it is for him to give us a place in eternity. So, falling down in front of them, begging them to believe in God's grace, this is exactly our situation. We who have also believed and started the journey, but have this niggling doubt. Surely my sins are actually so big that they become a barrier between me and entering into God's kingdom. And it's very easy to sort of uh, look down on those spiritually at these people, but in essence, if we are not full of joy and peace at the prospect of eternity before us, then it seems to me that we are rather similar to these people here. That we also have this doubt, will I be in the kingdom? If I were to say to you, if the Lord comes back at this minute, are you sure you'll be in the kingdom? Well, there's a lot of, sort of coughing and uh, rolling of eyes and rolling of heads and well not sure hope so and you know that is very similar if not identical to these people's mentality one can be quite happy coasting along in their religion without any real definite belief that i shall be saved and that is the essence that we will be saved this is why the gospel is good news not doubtful news about a possible salvation but the good news of a definite salvation and the point is the Lord delights in us. It's not as if he's in heaven looking down here on earth and assuming that actually uh, it's all over to us now. He's done all he can, given us his word, given us his son. And God is sort of saying, well, it's over to you now, up to you. See you at judgment day and we'll sort it out. But what he's saying here quite clearly is that he delights in us and he does not look at us passively. He does not look at us with indifference He looks at you and me with delight, and he therefore wants to give us the kingdom. He thought up this great idea of eternity uh, in his kingdom just simply because he delights in grace. He loves this kind of thing, to be as gracious and generous as possible to somebody. So then, just as those men, faithful men, Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, were on their faces begging Israel to believe in God's grace, that is, I think, how I am to myself and to you, trying to get us to to believe. And what do the congregation do? Verse 10, they stone them with stones, or they want to stone them with stones. Why so much anger? Because some other guy believes that God loves me. And because some other guy tells you, God loves you so much that you really can be in his kingdom. He wants you to be there. He delights in you. And they turn around and stone them or want to stone them with stones. What's the psychological basis of that anger? Is it not because it touches too radically and deeply into our consciences? I remember doing an editorial once in the Gospel News magazine and it was called, We Shall Be There. Uh, coming out with this uh, line that we definitely will be there and we should rejoice in hope of God's glory and out of all the editorials that I've written in that magazine over 25 years now I don't think I ever had as many angry emails and uh, letters and stuff you know, you're presuming too much you're presumptuous oh, no one tried to stone me with stones but um, there was a lot of anger why? simply from reminding us that we really will be there. And why is that so difficult to accept? Because it demands so much of us. If we shall be there and we shall live eternally and God really delights in you and me, that takes a grip on your whole life. It affects the decisions you're going to make about where you live, how you live, your career, your family life, etc., etc. So, God then has had enough. In verses 11 and 12, how long will it be until they believe me? In other words, believe in his love. So he says, verse 12, I will smite them and disinherit them. And that word translated disinherit is the same word repeatedly used, cast out. Go into the land of Canaan and cast out or disinherit the tribes that are there. And so God is saying, I'm going to treat unbelieving Israel just like I do the Gentile world. And that is a theme that is right through the Bible. Come out of Babylon, my people, so that you don't share in her judgment, in her condemnation. And you have it in the breaking of bread context in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we're told that those who will be rejected at the last day shall be condemned with the world. And so as I see it, the outcome of the Day of Judgment for the rejected is simply go back into the world and share their judgment. You, in your heart, love them. You wanted to hang around with them, go on holiday with them, uh, spend your life and time in the world. Okay, you know, go and be in the world. That's who you were. That's where you wanted to be. Go back there. And so... God says, I will disinherit them, that is Israel, and will make of you, that is Moses, a greater nation and mightier than them. Now, those two words, greater and mightier, or three words, greater, mightier nation, this is definitely, without question, picking up Genesis 18, verse 18, where God said that about Abraham, that I will make him a great and mighty nation. So, You see how God works. That was the essence of his plan, to make of Abraham's seed a great and mighty nation. And he began to do that with Israel. And now he's saying, I'm going to stop that. And, okay, I'm going to work on a plan B. Whereby Moses, who was also one of the seed of Abraham, I'm going to make of him and his family a great and mighty nation. So you see how open God is. His plan is to some extent open-ended. He says that he's going to make of Abraham a great and mighty nation, but how that actually worked out uh, could change, because he was going to initially do it with, uh, with Israel as a nation and now he says, no, I'm going to scrap that plan and do it through Moses and his family well, of course yet again the plan changed because Moses actually persuades God not to do that and this is an amazing idea that God is open to having his mind and his His uh, potential purposes changed by the intercession of people on earth. And so it is, I think, in so many lives. God may open up a certain path in your life. It could be illness leading unto death, apparently terminal illness. I suppose that would be the, uh, the most extreme case. Or a, a job transfer that's going to take you away from where you are to another place. It could be all sorts of things. And you can get in there with God and engage with him. And he is prepared, in some cases, to change to another plan. He's open. And, as we've seen here, three possibilities. To work through Israel. And then, second one, no, I'll scrap that, work through Moses. And then, okay, I'll scrap that one, because Moses interceded with me. And uh, will not do that. And then Moses asks God to forgive Israel, and God does that. And you see there in uh, verse 20, the amazing statement, I have pardoned according to your word. So there opens up a a massive uh, potential for us, that God is prepared to forgive people for the sake of third-party intercession. Not just to bless them with health or bless them because we prayed for them, but to actually bless them with forgiveness. You think of the the man who was taken by his friends to Jesus and let down through the roof. When Jesus saw the faith of the friends, Mark 2 verse 5, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. So then God and Jesus are prepared to forgive people for the sake of our prayers. Now that opens up a a massive amount of work for us to do in praying for others. Praying for their forgiveness. And God is prepared to hear that. But what does this actually mean then that God forgave Israel? Because they still didn't enter into the land. And he goes on to say, sure, I forgive them according to your word, but they shall not enter into the land. So... What sort of cash value was there in that statement, that I forgive them? Because he doesn't say, OK, yeah, play on, sure, you're going to go into the land. No, they don't. So what What practical uh, meaning did it have for God to say, I pardon them, according to your word? And I've thought a lot about this, and I'd be open to uh, what you think about it. But keeping on thinking about this over the last few days, I keep on thinking about this. God says, Okay, I'll forgive them because Moses prayed about it, but you can't go into the land. Now, what does that mean then? That he forgave them? And the only conclusion that I can come to is uh, a conclusion that seems almost too good to be true. That, okay, they didn't go into the land, but God forgave them, and that therefore, well, what does that mean? apart from the fact that they would therefore be in God's kingdom, ultimately. Even though, of course, their failure is used in a typical sense in the New Testament uh, to speak of those who shall not even finally get to God's kingdom in the future. But that is a type. But as far as actually these people are concerned, I think that they were forgiven, and therefore they will be in God's kingdom. So rather like Moses, he will be in God's kingdom, but he didn't get into the land because I guess there was some type there to to be fulfilled that Moses representing the law could not lead people into God's kingdom but Joshua Jesus did now of course Moses was in the same position he also sinned and was forgiven and will be in God's future kingdom but was not allowed to go into the land and in that you see an absolute identity between Moses and his people that he also sinned was punished by not being able to go into the land he asks God to rethink it and God says no and it's the same here the people want God to rethink it they even try to force their way into the land of Canaan but as we read at the end of the chapter they uh, are chased away they can't do it so there's a great similarity there between Moses and Aaron's position and that of the people of Israel as a whole And on that basis, I would argue that the blessing of forgiveness surely means that they're forgiven and that they will therefore be in God's kingdom ultimately, all because of the prayer of Moses for them. That's really pretty amazing. God then says um, in the next verse, verse 21, Uh, verse 21, but as truly as I live all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord the Hebrew word Eretz, translated earth, is the same word translated land and so he's saying, okay I will pardon them according to your word, but all the land will be filled with the glory of the Lord and that verse 21 follows on from verse 20 I'll forgive them, but the land will be filled with the glory of the Lord They're not going to go into the land, but the land will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And I don't think that that verse 21 is actually talking about the future kingdom of God on earth. Uh, There's many verses that do talk about that, but I'm not sure in the context that that's what verse 21 means. I think he's saying that... I want to fill that land with people who give glory to me. Because what does it mean that the land would be filled with the glory of the Lord? I don't think it means it should be filled with the white light of, say, the Shekinah glory. He's saying, I want that land filled with people who glorify me. And so, because they haven't done that, therefore they shall not enter into the land. I forgive them, uh, but the land will be filled with with people who have seen my glory and glorify me. Because in verse 22, he says they had seen my glory. But the point is, they had not glorified him because of it. So he says, I forgive you, but you're not going to go into the land because I want the land to be filled with people glorifying me. And he hoped that that was going to be the next generation. So then, he says in verse 28... As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And of course, uh, that's uh, uh, alluding back to verse 2, where the people say, Oh, would God that we had died in the, in the wilderness. God's saying, You said that, I heard that, that's what shall happen. It's rather like in the parable, Out of your own mouth will I judge you. And that's why we've got to be so careful as to what we say, because our words are the basis of our future judgment and we tend to minimize the importance of language the importance of words because it's actions which are judged by society as criminal or bad or otherwise whereas thoughts and words are simply thoughts and words and yet for God that is ultimately significant and so in a sense our words will be quoted back to us at the day of judgment that's why jesus says by your words you'll be justified and by your words you will be condemned and as i say in the parable he says out of your own mouth will i judge you you thought that i was a ridiculously hard mean man okay i shall be like that to you if that's what you said you thought i was and so in that sense Our words become the basis of our own judgment, because all these judgments of God that we read about here in the Old Testament are all foretastes of the final and ultimate day of judgment. So then God treated them as if they were dead already, because he says, verse 32, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness, as if they are already dead. And I... I want to emphasize the very strong language that God uses about them, about these people who, like us at times, said, I can't really believe. This is all too good, too good news. This is a gospel that is too good to believe. He says in verse 33, "Your whoredoms, This is prostitution against me. He says uh, in verse 35, You are gathered together against me. 36, you slandered the land. 37, you made an evil report. 23, you provoked me. Verse 9, you have rebelled against me. You could put all that together and say, wait a minute, what did they actually do? They simply just didn't believe that they would really be in the kingdom, that they could really enter that land. They thought it was too difficult. And yet, in essence, is that not what we in our moments of weakness and periods of weakness in our lives actually think and because God delights in us we're throwing it back in his face to say no I don't believe we can now we have to take that really seriously as I've said God is open to change and he can change his His planned purpose about you and me for good or for bad and he says in verse 34 at the end you shall know my breach of purpose clearly God can Uh, change his promises he can change his purpose and we we need to give that its absolute full weight Uh, and to remember that if we don't believe that he delights in us then verse 35 you are an evil congregation so he he says to them that they are not going to go into the land at that time and they desperately want to do so And the chapter finishes with them desperately wanting to do that and trying to get in. This is very similar to the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, where the the foolish virgins knock on the door when they've been rejected and say, let us in. We desperately want to be in. Why the picture of weeping and gnashing of teeth? It's because people desperately want to get there. The idea of weeping is very often about weeping before somebody to get them to change their mind. So, in the Day of Judgment, none of us will ever be passive or indifferent, shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, you know, if I don't get in there, so what? There will be one thing that we want more than anything else in the whole cosmos, in the whole of our existence, and it is that I shall be in his kingdom. If that is the ultimate end for you and me, then in our final, final, total judgment we stand there in the presence of the Lord Jesus, wanting only one thing, and that is to be in his kingdom, then that ought to characterise our lives now. If that is the one master passion in our lives, the things of his kingdom, and that I desperately want to be in his kingdom more than anything else in the world, then we actually will be there. And as I say, that is the final point in our spiritual journey for you and me that we shall come before him there's no way you can write a letter and get out of it or resign or whatever you can't we are going to stand before his his judgment and that is for sure we are responsible to that judgment and one thing will consume every fiber of our being that I want to be in your kingdom this, believe me believe God's word. This is our final end point. And if that is our final end point, then let that consume every fiber of our being right now.